there's a couple of housekeeping things I want to take care of as we get started here uh, this morning. And the first, I just hope I don't embarrass someone too much, but I got some good news, and I think good news is for sharing. Pam mentioned this morning that she's been clean for 11 years. Um, it's a blessing and a testimony of God's power at work uh, in our midst and God's power and at work in her life. So thank you for, for allowing us to share in that joy with you. Um, some of you may have recognized that we're going to be going through First Thessalonians, and you might be wondering what happened to Isaiah, and there's maybe a little bit of a long story, but I'll make it really short. We have an intern with us, Justice. He's going to be doing some preaching. And I thought maybe the least nicest thing I could do is to throw him into the bowels of Isaiah and say, have at it. Um, and we're going to be having some different um, uh, rotating speakers and that over the next uh, several months. And so I thought maybe we'll put a hold on Isaiah. I mentioned last week, chapter 39 is a good stopping point. It's the end of book one. And uh, so Lord willing, at some point in the undetermined future, uh, we'll return back to Isaiah. But for now, we'll be looking through the book of Thessalonians. So I want to start with a little bit of a, a mystery, um, and, and it's a mystery that I think is really rooted in a misunderstanding. There are these two churches that the Apostle Paul visited during his second missionary, missionary journey. They're 45 miles apart from each other. He went first to Thessalonica, and then he went to the city of Berea. And both of those two cities are well known today. Thessalonians, I think, because there are two letters in the New Testament that was named after them. And Berea, because Berea has almost this idolized understanding in our minds. It's the kind of a church that people look at the church in Berea, and they have an iconic place where people say, that's the kind of a church we want to be. And I thought one simple way to prove that would be to uh, turn to Google and to Google how many churches have the name Berea, as a part of their church name. There are two in Montana, one in Helena, one in Shepherd. There's one in Wyoming, there's four in Nebraska. And everywhere you travel, there'll be a church who's somewhere in their church name, they say, we wanna, we wanna be like the Bereans, we wanna honor the Bereans, we're gonna name, have a part of our church name, include the name of the Bereans. But how many churches do you know of that have named themselves after the church in Thessalonica? As far as I could tell, if Google is to be trusted, there is one in the Bronx, New York. There's the Thessalonian Christian Church, and I don't know if that's because that's a part of the suburb there. The only other ones are in Thessaloniki in Greece today, named after the city where they are. And so the mystery is, why do so many churches say, we want to we mention and we want to honor the church in Berea, and yet that's not happening with the church in Thessalonica? How many times you've been in a Bible class or been in a Bible study where someone said, raises their hand and says, well, I think we ought to be like the Bereans. And compare that to how many times somebody's raised their hand and say, well, I think we ought to be like the Thessalonians. The Bereans have got great press over the time of history. And by and large, we have ignored the Thessalonians. And yet Paul pre presents to us a church in Thessalonica that can be a model church that can teach us what it is like to be the people of God, people who give themselves over fully in service to God. 
So the best place to begin to explore and unpack this mystery is in Acts chapter 17, verse 10 and following. That very night, the believers sent Paul and Silas off to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. These Jews were more receptive than those in Thessalonica, for they welcomed the message very eagerly and examined the scripture every day to see whether these things were so. And that's where we get this place and this idea where we're going to kind of honor and give an iconic place to the church in Berea. And with a quick reading, it seems like what Luke is telling us is that the Bereans were better than the Thessalonians. But fortunately, we have a little bit extra time on a Sunday morning that we can do something more than just a quick reading. Uh, We can look at the details a little more closely. We can be a little bit more deliberate. And we can ask, what is Luke really saying? And what is Luke really teaching about these two groups of people? The first thing that we need to realize is our quick reading leaves us with the impression that that Luke is comparing the Christians in Berea, saying they were more receptive than the Christians in Thessalonica. But the problem is, that's not what Luke is saying. The point of comparison is not between two groups of Christians. In fact, what Luke is comparing, he is comparing two different groups of Jews in two different cities within two different synagogues. See, just a few verses before, we learn what happened when the gospel came to Thessalonica. Paul and Silas go to the city of Thessalonica. They are there likely for several months, but somewhere along the way, there are three weeks in a row where Paul is given the opportunity in the synagogue to preach a message about Jesus. And we are told that there were some in Acts 17:4, some were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great number of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And when these people converted, it created an automatic rift in the synagogue. Because some of the people are saying that Jesus is the Messiah, and others say, I'm not buying it, I'm not going to follow this Jesus. And so there is a divide and a rift. And some of those who are rejecting the way of Jesus, we are told these Jews became jealous. And so what these jealous Jews did is with the help of some ruffians in the marketplace, they formed a mob and sent the city into an uproar. They go and they attempt to grab Paul and Silas, and they're going to bring them before the city leaders, but they can't find them. Instead, they find Jason, the person who is hosting these two men in their home. And they drag him before the city officials, and here's their accusation. These people who have been turning the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has entertained them as guests. They are all acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor, saying that there is another king named Jesus. See, Thessalonica was a wealthy and prosperous city because they had a good relationship with Rome. And a way to continue to have a wealthy and prosperous city is to continue to have a good relationship with Rome. When they say they're turning the city, the world upside down, what they're saying is they're undermining the values of what, what makes for a peaceable society living under the Romans. And whenever they make these accusations that they are claiming there to be another king, all of these accusations are ones of rebellion, and political charges against these people. There are two results of what happened. Uh, We are told, first of all, in 17.9 of Acts, that they take bail from Jason. Likely what this means is Jason is forced to pay money, and, and with that, he has to guarantee the behavior of the Christians. As long as the Christians behave, he will later get his money back. But if they get out of line and misbehave, he does not get his money back. That's one of the implications 
The second implication is that Paul and Silas are told they need to leave Thessalonica. And of course, when they leave, they go to Berea. And that's where Luke picks up the story when he says, these Berean Jews were more receptive than those Jews in Thessalonica. So what Paul, what Luke is trying to make clear is that from a Christian perspective, a model synagogue would do what the Bereans do. In other words, if there were a Jewish group who said, could you help us name our synagogue? A great name for a synagogue is the Berean synagogue. Jews who are open-minded, who are willing to study about Jesus being the Messiah. But what about a church? What if you were involved in the process of naming a church? Is Luke saying you would be better off naming that church a Berean church or not? What's interesting is that we know very, very little about the church in Berea. We know what the synagogue did and how they handled, and that some became Christians, but beyond them becoming Christians, we know very little. But what we do know about the church in Thessalonica is that there is much for us to model, much for us to learn from that group of believers. And of course, the best place to explore why the church in Thessalonica can serve as a model church is to look at the letter that Paul wrote to them, what we now know as 1 Thessalonians. And as you're looking at 1 Thessalonians, you'll notice that, in fact, I'm saying Paul wrote it, and yet there are three authors, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. There are those three texts, and if you're really fast at writing, you can write those down and look at them later, where Paul will use I, and it's clear that he's referencing himself. So three of them are co-authoring it, but it is primarily Paul's hand as he writes to the church in Thessalonica. And if we'd spent time in Acts, and if we'd bought into kind of the, the long narrative about the church in Berea, here's how I think we would imagine Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. My dear Thessalonians, it has now been several months since I was forced out of your city due to the violence there. After leaving Thessalonica, of which I was happy to depart, I traveled on to the nearby city of Berea. And all I can say is, wow. In Berea, I met a group of people more receptive to the word of God than any city I have previously visited. People of Thessalonica, you have so much to learn from them and their example. They study the scriptures daily. If there be any love of God, I urge you to imitate the wonderful Bereans. Love, Paul. So let's see if that's what Paul wrote of these amazing Bereans that these Thessalonians ought to imitate their lives after. Paul begins with thanksgiving. We always give thanks to God for all of you and mention you in our prayers. There's something praiseworthy, something honorable, something for which Paul thanks God because of what these Thessalonians are doing. And Paul's going to give us two reasons why he is thankful for this church. And the first reason is that he gives thanks to God whenever he remembers their work of love, their labor of faith, and steadfastness of hope. You've probably heard those virtues before. Faith, hope, love. Paul uses them a lot. He likes to use them together. But what Paul emphasizes here in, in the church in Thessalonica is not simply just the virtues, but that each of these virtues produce a certain action. And so when those virtues are functioning as they should, they should produce something. So you think about it like an orchard. When you plant trees, you expect them to produce certain types of fruit. 
And so what Paul is saying is that these things in Thessalonica are producing what they should. If faith were a tree, it would produce the fruit of work. If love were a tree, it would produce the fruit of labor. If hope were a tree, it would produce the fruit of steadfastness. And Paul gives thanks because in this congregation, faith, hope, and love are producing what they're supposed to be producing in the lives of the Christians there. And so for the church today, that's a good question for us to ask ourselves. Are we, do we have a faith that produces work? Do we have a love that results in labor? And do we have a hope that produces steadfastness? The church in Thessalonica can be an example for us what it means to be the people of God. Now, the second source of Paul's thanksgiving is because he knows that God has chosen them. When Paul talks about being chosen, he is not talking about individual election. He's not talking about predestination. What Paul is saying is he's using this language in the Old Testament where God, God chose Israel, and now he says to this church, God has chosen you. God's affection and his favor is on the people. And there are a few evidences that Paul will show us that they have been chosen by God. And the first is the nature of the message and the nature of the messengers. When he speaks about the message, Paul says, because our message of the gospel came to you, not only in word, but in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of persons we proved to be among you for your sake. Paul just simply points back to their initial experience of the gospel. And he shows them that by their own witnessing, they have seen that the message came in power, in Holy Spirit, and in conviction. And he also, they've seen the trustworthiness of those messengers who've brought that message. They know what kind of people they are. You know is a phrase that will often be repeated in 1 Thessalonians. This is not a letter where Paul will come and say, you know, there's some things that, that you're completely unaware of, and I'm going to enlighten you. But preaching for Paul to, in Thessalonians will be an act of reminding them of those things that he said in that short period of time when he was there. Samuel Johnson said people need to be reminded more often than they need to be instructed. And so Paul will often say, you know, you know. Or he'll say things like, I don't really need to say this, but I'm going to go ahead and say this anyways. Because he is reminding them of who they are called to be and of the kind of life they are to have. And it is in this reminder that they will realize they are the chosen people of God. But now there's three things that Paul is going to say. Here's additional proof or additional evidences that God has chosen you as a people. And the first is that they became imitators. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For in spite of persecution, you received the word of God, the word with joy, inspired by the Holy Spirit. As humans, we learn by imitation, don't we? You know what will happen if you go up to a little baby, stick out your tongue, or purse your lips? It's going to imitate you, right? What I did not know until this week was, this is based on some research by uh, Andrew Metzoff, that that can happen when a baby is as old as six hours. You can go up to baby, stick out your tongue, and the baby's going to stick out their tongue at you. You've got to be close enough because they don't have great eyesight at six hours. But we learn by way of imitation. In fact, Vanderkalk says this, imitation is our most fundamental social skill. It assures that we automatically pick up and reflect the behavior of our parents, teachers, and peers. And Paul would say, this is how we become disciples of Jesus too. 
by way of imitation. And so imitation is like this chain link where you find that you have Jesus Christ who becomes God in the flesh. And those of his first disciples imitate his way of living. And as that message is taught, people will have a person to imitate, the one who brings the gospel to them. And so a worthy church, an example, a church that provides an example, are going to be people who we, too, can imitate their conduct, their actions, their behavior, and their beliefs. And here's what happens. If a person imitates Jesus, they now become the next chain in that link, and somebody can follow them because they become an example, which is the second thing that Paul will point to as a fact that they are chosen. It is shown in how they have become examples to others. 1 Thessalonians 1.17, So you have become an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So there's a cyclical relationship here between you imitate and therefore you become an example. There are people who try to be an example to others without imitating Christ. And what you're going to find out is that that will offer us a defective model of what it means to become the people of God. And what I find really interesting here is that Paul is saying that this church is an example to all the churches in Macedonia and Achaia. And do you want to know where the church in Berea is located? In Macedonia. Paul is not saying, hey, church in Thessalonica, look at that Berean church and become like them. He is saying the Berean church is actually imitating and following the example that they've learned from whom? From the Thessalonians, who have been faithful in first of all imitating and then therefore in becoming examples to people all across that area. They are a model church, not just in their city, but in the surrounding areas. And the church in Thessalonica is an example for other churches in two specific ways. Number one, they are an example of an evangelistic church. For the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and in Achaia, but in every place your faith has become known. So in this, notice what Paul says, so that we don't even need to say anything about it. Well, if you don't need to say anything about it, why are you? Because he's wanting to remind them of what they're already faithfully doing. And I think that it's a good reminder for all of us that churches can invest their energy predominantly in one of two places, either internally or externally. You can be an inward-focused church or you can be an outward-focused church. And what the church in Thessalonica models for us is a church that sends the word out. Just like the blast of a trumpet goes forth, so the word of God is going forth from this church. And I wonder how would a person decide if they were an inward or an outward church? Here's four things I put together, and I'm so proud of myself because they all start with the same letter. Some preachers do it all the time, but it's a rare special occasion for you. Four words all start in the same letter C, because my name starts with C too, so I can hopefully remember it. First thing is you're going to look at coins. What is the church doing with its finances? An inward-looking church, a lot of their coins are going to go inward. Guess where an outward-looking church's coins are going to go? It's going to go to things that are happening outside of their walls. Now, does this mean that an outward-looking church would never do anything like spending money on chairs for its church, theoretically, hypothetically? No. It means that while we will sometimes do things that is spent on us, predominantly it is not for us. It is a tool that we use, a vessel that we have for God's kingdom purposes. The second thing to look at a church, to decide if it is inward or outward focus, is conversations. An inward-focused church will talk an awful lot about what do I like, what makes me comfortable, what are my preferences. An outward-looking church will ask questions like, what does God want from us? 
What do they, those outside the church, need? And how about this question? How might I be called to make myself uncomfortable for their sake? You see the difference, the kinds of conversations that you'll have? Calendars. Inward-oriented churches and outward-oriented churches will do different things with their time. Is the calendar full of things for us or things for the community? And then the last, perhaps the easiest to measure, is conversions. Are people responding to the gospel message? And so if the church in Thessalonica is a model for us, one of the things that we can ask ourselves is how do we rate? Are we an inward-oriented church or an outward-oriented church? And here's my personal most gracious there's an awful lot of room for growth for us to be an outward-oriented congregation. And then the second way, that they become examples for those in Macedonia and Achaia is in their Christian conduct. There are these four key words in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10. They welcomed, turned, served, and waited. Three of them are here in verse 9. For the people of those regions reported to us what kind of a welcome we had among you. And how you turn from God uh, to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And remember what we said was great about the Bereans was, was the kind of a welcome that they offered the missionaries. The Jews in Thessalonica did not offer a very good welcome. But guess who did? The Christians. Those who accepted the message. Now the kind of a welcome that they're giving is being known all throughout the area. Because this is a model church that Paul wants other churches to recognize there is a value in learning to be a welcoming church. And so the question becomes of us, would we be known as a welcoming church? We talked about conversations earlier, and one of the conversation metrics for an inward and outward church is, who do you welcome on Sunday morning? Do you welcome your best friend that you guys have gone to high school together and for the last 32 years you're best friends and every Sunday you get together and you fist bump and you hang out in your little club and you say, oh, I don't know who that is, but that's okay. My bestie's here. Are we a church that offers a welcome to people who we don't know, but who we extend the hospitality of the gospel to? Thessalonica was a welcoming church. Their conduct was seen in how they turned from idols and then they turned to serving the living and true God. The chosen people of God will show their selection and election by turning from an old way of living. And there's a statement here that helps us to get a fuller picture that, that's not painted in Acts 17. In Acts 17, we learned about the conversion of some, um, what we call God-fears. These are Gentiles who are already going to the synagogue. Uh, we learned about the conversion of some of the leading women there. But these people who turn from idols will be the Gentiles. These are people who didn't have anything to do with synagogue, and they've converted from the way of following idols to now becoming followers of God. And you say, well, how do you think that happened? I suspect those Christians who's known to ring out the message taught their people in the community, the Gentiles, and the Gentiles responded by turning from their old way of living to serve the living God. And the final key word of an example church is in chapter 1, verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath that is coming. Waiting may seem like a little bit of a passive activity, but the waiting that is described here is an active leaning forward. It's an expression of our faith. It is a waiting that is looking forward. It is a waiting that is living forward. It is a waiting that is ranging everything that we do today in light of a certain future, the coming of Jesus Christ, who saves us from the wrath of God. Everything is oriented to who 
Jesus is. And notice that in all these instructions, Paul's not saying you guys need to start doing this or you ought to consider this or maybe you should do this. Paul's simply saying, I thank God because here's what I'm seeing and here's what I'm witnessing in this group of believers because Paul believes that they are a model church for which other churches should consider following. So I hope this morning we've helped solve the mystery or at least clarified why maybe the church in Thessalonica needs to be recognized for a godly people. That they would be a church that is worthy to name a church after because they are an example for us. We have learned that this is a group of people whose faith has produced work. Their love has produced the fruit of labor and their hope has produced the fruit of steadfastness. There are people who have told us that it's important to learn to imitate. And when you learn to imitate well, then you can become an example to others. And in that way, there's an evangelistic outreach that shows not just from the message, but through the conduct that has changed. This is a model church. And I hope over the next several weeks, as we continue to study about the church in Thessalonica, we will find a group of people for whom we say we would like to pattern our faith, our hope, and our love after this body of believers. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace. And just remember, as we go from here, we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we're going to stand and sing a song in just a moment. Uh, myself and some of the elders will be in the back. If you want to pray with someone, if you want to talk about what your life with God looks like, if you have some kind of a need, I invite you to come to the back while we stand and sing this next song together. <laughs>